Good morning. Good to be back uh, with you again, and uh, I want to thank uh, Ken for stepping in last week, preaching uh, God's Word for us. Uh, we are, if you have been <coughs> following along uh, in Mark's Gospel, and uh, we are trying to sync up the, the, uh, the preaching calendar with the church calendar this year, so we are just a few weeks out from Easter. If you are celebrating the liturgical calendar, maybe if you are in the season of Lent right now, preparing our hearts, uh, we're, we're trying to follow that calendar to its climax in Easter. So just a couple weeks from now, we will be having a big party on Easter Sunday. It's going to be an awesome uh, celebration, and we're kind of following that trajectory of Mark's gospel towards that great moment. But the challenge is there are 10 chapters covering Jesus' ministry, and then there are six chapters covering Jesus' Passion Week. That's a third of the book uh, devoted to Holy Week, and so that's too much content to cram in between Palm Sunday and Easter, even with our Seder Supper and with our Tenebrae service for uh, Good Friday. So we're entering the Passion narrative a few weeks early, and we're going to return to chapter 11. Some of you may have noticed, what, did we just skip the triumphal entry? Uh, what's going on here? We just jumped over chapter 11, 1 through 11. We're going to come back to that at Palm Sunday uh, so that we can be able to teach through that beautiful uh, narrative on Jesus' triumphal entry on the week before Easter as it should be in the, in the calendar there too. But in the next few weeks, we are going to begin to cover Jesus' busy uh, Passion Week even as we're preparing our hearts for Holy Week. So I hope these weeks are preparatory for you, uh, just helping your heart uh, to be able to pre- be prepared for the beautiful celebration uh, we're going to have. And my hope is that following Mark's gospel to its climax in Easter uh, will help us be able to more fully enter that story, right? That you just be swept up into uh, the narrative that we're, we're a part of. And the story is building in intensity. If you've been following along, Jesus is moving towards a head-on collision with the religious establishment. He's not content to stay at the margins of Jewish religious life, but at the climax of his ministry, he takes his message to the center. And the the same is true for us this morning. Uh, My big idea for this morning is Jesus is not content to stay at the margins of our lives. He must be. Man, losing my voice already. This is not good. (laughs) He must be. He must be at the center. And so <clears throat> Jesus' ministry mirrors that movement right towards the center, and I hope we see that for our own lives as well. Here, so a couple points here as Jesus is moving towards the center of Jewish religious life. He is going to be moving towards the temple in Jerusalem. While he's there, we're going to see him do three things. We're taking a big chunk of scripture this morning. And so we're going to see him cleaning his father's house, verses, or chapter 11, 12 through 25. We're going to see him establishing his authority, chapter 11, 27 through 25. And then we're going to see him warning his contemporaries in chapter 12, 1 through 12. So lots of text to cover. Uh, buckle your seatbelts because we are about to dive into some very uh, exciting content. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we wouldn't keep Jesus out in the margins of our lives, but that we would make space for him at the very center 
of our lives. And so let's pray as we enter into our scripture this morning that God would meet us here uh, as we study his word together. Father, it's so easy, uh, especially in a place like Grand Rapids, to have a socially acceptable amount of religion or spirituality, but to keep you on the periphery of our lives. So easy to go through the motions of church on Sunday morning, but to miss the opportunities to be a part of your kingdom all week long. So would you help us as we journey towards the cross in this season of Lent to clean house so that we can make space for you? God, would you uh, just wreck the things in our lives that are keeping us uh, from you, that are keeping our hearts far uh, from you, God? And would you, even this morning, God, be just winning our hearts to you. So we pray that you'd come this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to your people, uh, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we are picking things up on day two in Jerusalem. Uh, We're going to return to day one, Jesus' triumphal entry, uh, in a couple weeks. And it's an interesting start to the day. Uh, If you are following along in Mark chapter 11, uh, let's just pick it up here in verse 12. Yeah, it's a very interesting narrative. My kids were really intrigued by this uh, particular story as it unfolded here, because on the following day when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not in the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. What an interesting story, right? Jesus is continually healing and mending broken things. We see Jesus' grace and mercy on display throughout Mark's gospel. His compassion is one of the big themes. Uh, This is the only occasion where we see him cursing anything, right? What's Jesus' problem with the fig tree? Is Jesus just having a bad day? Is he hangry? You know, he's hungry. He's on his way to the cross, and the guy just wants a snack, right? Like, what is going on? Inquiring minds want to know, why is Jesus so angry? Why is he cursing random fig trees? Well, if you have been following along with our series, then you have seen the incredible intentionality, right, to everything that Jesus does, right? Even the most bizarre and confusing scenes in Mark's gospel have an explanation. They have a reason. They have a purpose. And of course, this is no exception. The secret to unlocking this dramatic cursing of the fig tree is to look at Jesus' ministry in the temple sandwiched between these two mentions of the fig tree. So if we're going to understand the significance of the fig tree here in our text, we need to have a grasp on the significance of Jesus' ministry in the temple, what he's doing at the center of these two mentions. This is a common poetic device here uh, that the New Testament authors often use. So, so let's dig in a little bit more deeply into Jesus' ministry at the center, and that's going to make sense of what's happening here with the fig tree that we're going to see in the beginning of this text and also at the end of that. And so the center of this text is Not only a dramatic cursing of the fig tree, but also a dramatic cleansing of the temple. Let's pick it up here in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer 
for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. After that triumphal entry, everyone is wondering what Jesus' next move will be. Uh, We skipped that text, but Jesus had come to the acclaims of the crowd, was welcomed as a king. He came to Jerusalem, walked into the temple to the very heart and center of religious life, looked around, and then because it was late, he went home. And so it's this highly anticlimactic moment. And so when Jesus comes back to Jerusalem on day two, back to the temple, everyone's wondering what is going to happen. And Jesus enters the temple, the center of Jewish religious life, and he starts turning over tables. And I really want to, like, to Ken last week, act this out. I really wanted some tables to just throw over and all. That would have been very gratifying. But you get the It's a very graphic visual, right? It was just Jesus is just, he is just turning tables over. He's shoving people out of the way, stopping people from carrying junk around the temple. And it is a dramatic moment. He's making a dramatic scene. You know, first he curses a fig tree and now he's throwing tables around. This is definitely a different side of Jesus than we have seen before in Mark's gospel, right? It's an interesting picture for us. In uh, his, his gospel, John quotes Psalm 69.9, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. What we see here in this text is Jesus' passion for true prayer, true worship, in the temple, and anything that is going to get in the way of a true and authentic connection with God, with people meeting with the true and living God. The temple was the heart of Jewish religious life, so Jesus' passion for its purity, for prayer and worship to be happening there makes sense, right? He is fired up because the temple is not serving its function to connect people to the true and living God. The problem with the temple at this time is it's gotten pretty crowded. I think I have a visual up here uh, somewhere on the slide there of the temple. And the Jewish historian Josephus told us that the Jews of Jesus' day had turned the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace. So that big section next to the temple there, huge, you know, a couple football fields large. They had turned that area, that court of the Gentiles, into a massive marketplace where animals were being bought and sold. Josephus uh, told us that one Passover over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed. So if you can imagine this scene, right, tens of thousands of animals and livestock all wandering around the courts directly next to the temple. I mean, what a scene, right? This would have been like a full-on Middle Eastern market. I mean, just absolutely bustling with activity and commerce and activity And Jesus steps into this chaotic scene and just starts cleaning house, just clearing away the tables, clearing away the livestock, clearing away all the busyness happening around the house of his father. And so Jesus is fired up to see this house be a house of prayer, a house of worship. But there's another important angle to what Jesus is doing here. The Jews of Jesus' day thought, that when the Messiah came, he would throw the Gentiles out of the temple, right? He would throw the Gentiles out of Jerusalem and, of course, ultimately throw them out of Israel altogether. And Israel would finally have its land back, right? Have its rule back, have its temple 
back. Worship would be purified and cleansed of all of those unclean people, all of those outsiders. Uh, But Jesus is doing the exact opposite. Notice what he says in verse 17, quoting the prophet Isaiah, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, right? For all the nations to come and worship. And so when Jesus is cleaning out the court of the Gentiles, he's cleaning out the one place in the temple that the Gentiles could actually worship the true and living God. And what's happening there in the court of the Gentiles? What's going on? Right? It's a giant marketplace, right? People are selling animals. Like, I mean, it's, a gen- it's like a bazaar out there. And this is where the Gentiles are supposed to be worshiping their God. This is where people from all the nations are supposed to come and experience the true and living God. Isaiah 56, where this text comes from, is all about outsiders being welcoming. It's about the welcoming heart of God to the nations. And Jesus is clearing out the court of the Gentiles to make space for worship so the people from all nations can come and experience God. Contrary to popular expectation, Jesus is not clearing out the Gentiles from the temple. He's clearing out the court of the Gentiles so they can come and pray. Jesus is opening wide the doors of the temple in welcome so that people can come and experience um, God. And what he says is the indictment against the religious leaders is that they've turned the current temple into a den of robbers, right? And that could be a reference to just all of the business going on in the temple, that they're cheating people, that they've turned this into a giant economic racket to make money for themselves and make the whole religious establishment wealthy. That could very well be happening, but this word robbers can also mean insurrectionists or revolutionaries. It's equally possible, maybe even more likely, that Jesus is not only condemning all the commerce going on in the temple, he's concerned that the temple has become a symbol of national pride and identity more than a place of worship for the nations, right? Jesus is challenging all of these assumptions, all of these nationalistic ideas that this is the center of Jewish identity. This is, this is a place for, for Jews to be and, and kick everyone out, exclude everyone out. Jesus is challenging those assumptions. The religious establishment is absolutely furious, right? They're seeking a way to destroy him. They like their temple just the way it is, right? A temple for Jews where, you know, the Gentiles can live out on the margins there with the cattle and the sheep and the doves and the other animals, right? This, this is the world that they have come to set up. And Jesus is undermining their whole conception of what the temple is for, but they can't touch Jesus because all the crowds are hanging on his every word. They see in Jesus' gracious welcome of the nation something remarkable, something beautiful, clearing out the temple of all the animals that were there. Certainly, Jesus wasn't the only one fed up and frustrated about how the temple had become just one more marketplace filled with commerce and busyness and activity, uh, but no prayer. And so don't miss Jesus' heart to welcome uh, wide to the temple all the nations. Uh, I love what Tim Keller says. Christianity is the most inclusive exclusive religion around. Like people are welcomed in from everywhere, right? Anybody can be a part of this thing. You know, God is welcoming people from all nations to be a part of his of what he's doing in the world. And this we see in Jesus' ministry. He is opening wide the temple to the nations so that everyone can come in. But at the same time, Jesus uses this episode and this ministry uh, to help us pause and consider what tables may be need to be turned over in our own lives. As the biblical narrative unfolds, we see that 
that we are, in fact, God's temple. And like Herod's temple, our lives can sometimes get pretty cluttered with all the things going on in our lives. And so this text gives us a wonderful opportunity to take stock, to wonder where are maybe the ways that our lives have gotten cluttered with all of the busyness and our schedules and activities and all of the important, wonderful things we do. Uh, But maybe there's not a lot of space for prayer and for God in our lives. And this is a wonderful opportunity in this season to be wondering maybe what areas of our lives need to be cleared out. Are we more concerned like the Jews about our national identity than the kingdom of God? Are we more preoccupied with politics left or right than we are about the kingdom of God? Are we making space for people far from God? Or do our lives show the same kind of disdain the religious establishment showed to the Gentiles, the outsiders of their own time? Here in West Michigan, right, we have wonderful things, right, that can crowd out our relationship with God. We're this wonderful family-friendly city, right? And we've got all these wonderful family connections. We have these wonderful careers and things to do. But even some of the best things right, can be the things that begin to crowd out our relationship with God, uh, making him central to our lives. So there couldn't be a better season for us to be thinking about maybe some spring cleaning, <laughs> some Lent, <laughs> Lenten cleaning as we think about the things maybe cluttering up our lives. We've got this invitation from Jesus to come and pray in his house, to worship in his house, but also at the same time a challenge, a very pointed challenge to think about the tables maybe that need to be turned over in our own living rooms. And so this brings us here at the end of uh, uh, this section to the end of day two. But in the morning of day three, uh, the disciples pass by this fig tree once again, and the fig tree comes back up as a subject of conversation, which kind of brings this segment of the text to a close. So let's pick that up again in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. And, whatever you, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. The the cursing of the fig tree is an enacted parable. This is something we see throughout the prophets, a sign to the disciples on their way. Just as the fig tree looked like a healthy tree that would produce a fruitful harvest, the temple in Jesus' day looked very impressive. Herod's temple was a spectacular building. Tens of thousands of pilgrims are there buying animals for the annual Passover sacrifice But Jesus is saying this is all empty pretense, right? Lots of activity and business, but little prayer and worship. This parable would have made way more sense, right, to Jesus' original audience because Israel had often been likened to a vine or a fig tree by the prophets. So Jeremiah 8, Hosea 9, Joel 1, again and again, Israel is being compared to a fig tree. Uh, It's in its fruitfulness and then also in its judgment, right? The lack of early green fruits on this fig tree that would have preceded the leaves indicated that while this tree looked really healthy, it was in fact actually 
dying, right? And while the disciples are struck by Jesus' miraculous power and perhaps would like to be able to curse things and, and you know, curse some fig trees and have some miraculous powers of this sort, Jesus takes this moment to explain that they have everything they need for the advance of the kingdom. True faith will move mountains, just as Jesus is about to demonstrate at the Temple Mount, where his revolution is going to shake everything on that Temple Mount. Everything about the religious establishment is going to be turned upside down. And Jesus tells his disciples they have only to ask for what they need for his work and faith, and he will provide. And they're called uh, not to exclude their enemies, not to judge their enemies, but to forgive their enemies and welcome them in, give them an invitation to enter God's kingdom. So we have this dramatic parable, right, of a fig tree, which looks healthy, looks fruitful, but is actually dying. We have a temple system that Jesus is challenging. It's corruption, it's pretense, it's showiness, it's emptiness, all together in this one beautiful metaphor. And then the tension continues to ratchet up as day three continues. Um, This time, the conversation is going to be about Jesus' authority. I told you we got lots of text to cover this morning. So let's pick up this next section here in verse 27. And they came to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from this man? Answer me. And they discussed it, one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But we say from man, they are afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. When Jesus returns to the temple in day three, this time the religious leaders are ready. They want to challenge him. He just came in there yesterday, cleaned house. Everybody is astonished. They're amazed. Jesus is purifying the temple. He's cleaning. He's welcoming in uh, the Gentiles. And they're wondering, by what authority are you doing this? Who gave you the authority? This is our house. This is our temple. Right? We've been here you know, for hundreds of years in this place doing these things. Who gave you the authority to come in here and take over? And Jesus answers their question by asking them a question. Typical rabbinic fashion, rather than giving them a direct answer, he's like, let me ask you another question. John's baptism, was it from men or from God? And of course, the religious establishment has claimed authority over the temple, right? They've been there, you know, they are the established, but Like John, Jesus is claiming a different kind of authority. He's claiming authority directly from God himself. And and here's the problem, right? Well, the religious authorities refuse to recognize that John was sent from God. The crowds, even if they didn't fully understand his message, recognized it was from God, and they accepted his authority. So once again, as in verse 18, the religious leaders are in a bind. They can't dismiss John's authority without the crowds rioting, and they can't accept it because they, if they would, they'd have to accept Jesus because John was, of course, preparing the way for him. And so Jesus is once again establishing his authority, saying, you know, John's authority from God, my authority from God, I am here to do the work of God. Your religious attrition, your religious customs, all of those have no binding authority here. The crowds recognize it, right? Even if they don't fully understand what Jesus is doing, they are willing 
uh, to trust what Jesus is doing, but the religious establishment can't do anything about it. And I think this is an important discussion for us to pause and consider for ourselves, this question of authority, right? Because we live in a day and age, right, where it's quite popular to have no authority but yourself, right? That's this is kind of the world we live in. Like, we, we reject authority. We are anti-establishment. You know, stick it to the man. That's kind of the world we live in. All of our authorities out there are telling us, throw off all authority. Don't listen to any authority. And that's a fairly authoritative claim to live in a world with no authorities, where, where nobody is in charge, right? Nobody's making things like most times and most places in the world, good authority, right, has been seen as crucial to human flourishing. Like, you want the people that are in charge to actually looking out for the people under them. And right, anarchy in general has been a pretty negative place for people to live their lives, right? Where there is no benevolent authority figures around, right? Chaos happens. You're living in the Wild West, right? It's just chaos. And so the question isn't, will we live under authority? Of course, we're going to live under some, some kind of authority. It's what kind of authority? Will we live under the authority of the mob, the authority of social media, the authority of whatever ideology happens to be popular at the moment, or will be, we be under the authority of King Jesus, right? A king who sacrifices his life for the people under his care. Jesus' authority comes to us uh, on his way to the cross. The authority he's claiming is authority to lay down his life for those around him. It's an authority to serve humbly, uh, as we've seen numerous times throughout this text Already, it's a good kind of authority. And I know in our culture, good and authority just don't go together. It's like an oxymoron. And so it kind of blows our mind a little bit. But Jesus is claiming a kind of authority that we should graciously accept, that we should want to bow the knee to. So these confrontations, they, they continue to ratchet up the tension, you know, which only continues as Jesus begins to kind of poke at the religious leaders. I mean, he's essentially just poking them in the eye every time you know, around the temple, right, their space, around their authority, cuts that down. And then, and then finally, <coughs> here in, excuse me, our final section of text, 12, <coughs> 1 through 11, we're going to get Jesus' final and maybe most provocative parable here uh, directed directly at the religious establishment. Let me read this text, and we'll just look briefly at it this morning. I know, lots of text to cover. Hang with me. We're going to make it here to the finish line. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard to put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it out to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head, treated him shamefully, and he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left and went 
away. And so in this parable, Jesus switches metaphors, right? Instead of Israel like into a fig tree um, that doesn't bear any fruit, this time he talks about a vineyard. And he talks about God's provision for the vineyard, the fence, the wine press, the tower, everything needed for a successful vineyard. But then he leases it out to some tenants, right, to care for his vineyard, to watch over it, to provide for it, and to give him some revenue, some return on his investment, right? He's just bought a rental property. He's fitted out and he expects the tenants to take care of it as tenants are supposed to do. Only these tenants are the worst, right? They, they send his, he sends his servants for some of the fruit from the vineyard and they shamefully treat them. They beat them up. They kill them and, and on and on and on it goes. It's a tragic situation. You know, it's the rental situation, the nightmare rental situation. Worst tenants ever. Until the owner sends Lastly, climactically, his beloved son. And shockingly, they kill him to throw him out and uh, throw him out of the vineyard thinking that they're going to throw off the owner's claims on his vineyard. And Jesus asks this rhetorical question, what do you think the owner is going to do um, now that the tenants have killed his beloved son? And the Pharisees, typically with Jesus' parables, right, everyone's kind of confused and the disciples are like, what does he mean? This time, like, even the Pharisees get exactly what Jesus is saying. They're like, man, this parable was told against us. We're the terrible tenants that God put over his people, Israel, to care for the vineyard. And instead of actually listening to all the people that God has sent to us, all the prophets, right, we've rejected them. And last of all, climactically, worst of all, we've rejected God's own son. And they are livid, they're angry, they're furious. But once again, for the third time, they would love to do something, but the crowds are all hanging on his every word. They're incapable of doing anything. Uh, Three things uh, are worth maybe just sitting with for a few minutes as we kind of land the plane here this morning. First, it's sobering, right, to see the religious establishment rejecting their own prophets and ultimately God's son, right? That's, that's sobering to think that the people who were at the temple, the people that knew God, most people who were studying God's word, the scribes, the people entrusted with God's word, the people entrusted with the care of the temple, the people that were doing the sacrificial system, the people that knew most about God in their culture, right, are the people, right, that are rejecting God. And so that means that if you're here this morning, just because you're here uh, for church on Sunday morning and you're looking great and you've come prepared and you know a little bit about the Bible and God doesn't mean, right, that we can't just leave God out on the periphery, right? It's easy for us to go through the motions of religion and spirituality and still push, give God kind of the stiff arm, keep him out there on the periphery, still run our lives just as we want to do so. So there's a sobering warning here, right, to listen to the words God says, listen to what he wants to do, the ways he might want to clean house, the ways he might want to challenge the authority structures in our lives, the people we're listening to and influenced by, right, that he wants to get a word to us. Second, um, if rejection has been a lot of the prophets and God's beloved son, um, it shouldn't be super surprising then, right, that if there is some rejection that we have to face in our own lives, if there is uh, ways we're going to be persecuted, made fun of uh, in various ways, rejected, um, that's something we've got to consider. We've got to process. I mean, living in West Michigan, we're in a pretty we got to admit, we're in a pretty cozy place here, right? Not a lot of overt persecution here, but that's something we have to think about, and we should be praying for those in other parts of the world or other parts of the country where uh, that persecution is far more 
uh, intense and, and far more uh, difficult. Just talking to some missionaries this week in a coffee shop from Nepal and just hearing their story and how they're talking through what it looks like to be a Christian in a place like that where, you know, conversions are not even allowed, you know, by law. Or talking to some of our friends from Turkey and the challenges that hey, they have to deal with, right? Persecution has been the normal lot of Christians around the world. But finally, and most importantly, I think, Jesus is speaking this parable knowing full well that he is the beloved son who is going to be killed, right? He is the son of God as Mark's gospel is going to make clear. He is the cornerstone that is going to be rejected. But instead of running from this awful destiny, Jesus is moving resolutely towards it, right? I mean, if I were... (laughs) If I were hearing these parables, the end of this story, I would be running the other way. But Jesus is moving directly towards the cross. All through this season, we've seen Jesus just set his face like Flint, moving towards the cross. He looks these religious leaders right in the eye and dares them to do their worst. Why? Because he knows the only way to ultimately overcome their stubborn resistance and our stubborn resistance is not with threats, or force, or shame, or guilt, but with his redeeming love, right? It, it's the ultimate power move, right? Jesus gives up all of his power, right? Laying his life down for all the ways we have let him down. It's his redeeming love, this inexplicable grace that brings down all of our defenses, that is so disarming that we can't argue with, we can't fight, right? Right? someone who would lay down their lives for us. Uh, This is what softens us to be people who are responsive to what God wants to do in our lives. I love how Tim Keller describes uh, the gospel. He says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. That is the beauty, friends, of the gospel. Jesus will lay down his life so that we can be honest about the sinfulness, about the areas of disorder, about the ways we've rejected God's authority, about all the clutter that we allow to accumulate in our lives, right? The, the ways in which our lives are not reflective of the prayer and worship that God is calling us to. It's Jesus' sacrificial love that gives us the space to be honest about who we are and get the help that we need to be surrounded by a community that's going to love us and extend grace to us and kindness and gentleness as we walk this journey together. So it's Monday morning, and you're about to start another busy week. What could you do with all of this very long uh, series of episodes in Mark's gospel? As we're gathered around the table celebrating God's extravagant grace here in just a moment, take some time to think maybe about the tables Jesus might be lovingly turning over in your heart. Maybe there are things he's going to be prodding, his Holy Spirit is going to be putting on your heart. Be sensitive to that. Be listening to that. He loves you. He's laid down his life for you. As we're gathering around the table, sacrificing his, uh, celebrating his sacrificial leadership of the church, think about the authorities in your life. Who are you following? What voices are you listening to? Uh, think about those authority figures and also think about the loving authority of Jesus and our opportunities to listen to him, to be tuned into what he would say to us. And as God gets crowded out of your life, as he will, when you reject his authority, which is going to happen, and when you fail to listen to the people he sent into your life, remember Jesus went to the cross for all of that too. 
He knew he could never find our way back to him, so he came down to seek and save the lost. He came down to offer his life in our place. Every other religion offers you a list of things to do to help you find your way to God, but Christianity is totally different. In Christianity, God himself comes down for us, dies for us, and rises again to give us new life. It's that love that gives us the courage to turn over the tables in our lives when our spiritual life gets out of order that makes us want to submit to his loving authority and receive the people God has sent our way. I want to close with uh, just one final illustration from C.S. Lewis, of course, because I I can't finish the sermon without a good C.S. Lewis quote here. But I think it really brings us back, hopefully brings home this idea of God's desire to clean house in our lives and his purpose behind it. Listen to what Lewis says in Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You know those jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And that, friends, is the beauty of the gospel, right? When Jesus came to cleanse the temple, it was so that God could come and live in the midst of his people. But there's there's some house cleaning that has to be done for God to come and live among us. And we want to be a church where God is present and active and we get to experience him And uh, we want to do the work, the hard work, rolling up our sleeves, working through the areas maybe where we need to be remodeled, where we need to be renovated, where God has work to do in each of our hearts. And so what a beautiful place to uh, land here as we go to the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for uh, the ways he uh, gently just steps in to our lives, and sometimes quite forcibly starts turning over tables in our comfortable lives because he loves us, because he wants to see us experience more of him. And so I pray this morning, even as we gather around the table, we're reminded of his sacrificial love, his body broken and his blood shed. That love would move us deeply, uh, profoundly to make the changes we need to make in our lives Uh, to declutter the areas of our lives that have gotten a little cluttered, to really graciously respond to his loving authority in our lives. And so would you do your work this morning, your ministry, and the lives of your people today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.